Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 185, recorded November 22nd, 2014. So for the last couple of episodes, I've been promising that this episode would be the final Starfleet Academy episode. But Yeah, and good news and bad news about that. Yes, I don't know how to count, so we'll actually have one more issue to do of Starfleet Academy next week. So Yay. We won't quite finish up the series just yet. Right. So we'll be doing issues 16 and 18 of Starfleet Academy. These came out in early 1998, I believe. Yep, you're right. March through the summer. At least the first one's March, definitely. Right. But uh, overall, I think they're really good. I, I, I liked where the uh, T'Pril storyline ended up and where it might go in the future. Right. So definitely some of my conjectures were not right about what I thought was going to happen. But uh, they definitely do have it teed up by the end of the third book today, talking about hmm, what might happen with T'Pril's body. So I hope I'm not giving away too much, but I look forward to talking about that. Right. And it just really makes you kind of sad that what, what, where would they have gone if they were able to continue past issue number 19 with these characters? I don't know. But I, I agree with you. I do like the series. Sometimes things move so fast that it's the narrative just, just boom, 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 boom. There's like seldom a break in the action and stuff that it's uh, when you slow down and take a look at it, saying, hmm, things are going a bit quick. <laughs> These right. people never get a break. But I guess that, I mean, that makes it more exciting, more interesting. Yeah. It would suck to be them, but uh, it was, it's cool to watch them. Yeah, exactly, right. I mean, you, <laughs> exactly. It's, you don't want to turn into Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, but right. it is definitely the opposite of that. Right, right. Yeah, so I don't want to spoil anything with uh, some comments that I would like to make right now, but uh, I'll Good. reserve those. Let's save it for later. Finished. Yes. Excellent. So shall we find out what happens in part three? Right. I'm waiting patiently okay with bated breath okay so i will be doing issue number 16 which is titled to prill revealed part three the fall published date is march 1998 writer is chris cooper penciler chris renaud anchor andy lanning colors kevin summers letterer jim novak editor bobby chase editor-in-chief bob harass the cover features T'Pril jumping into what appears to be a burning pit, with Adam, Decker, and Pava arrayed along the edge trying to stop her. Text tells us this is part three of three of the T'Pril revealed storyline. Other text asks the burning question, is this suicide? The issue opens up at the burning firefall of Galgathong where Professor Invat is showing Selkie the wonder for the first time. 
The professor tells her the falls of fire are the very embodiment of the Romulan heart. It burns bright with destructive passions, yet is incredibly beautiful. Selkie is awed by the sight, but then she hears a voice from the edge at her feet. It is to Prill in a robe crawling up the side towards Selkie. Half of her face is a skinless skeleton. As she grabs Selkie's leg, she says Selkie failed to return her Katra to Vulcan. She says she will not remain a prisoner of Selkie's unconsciousness. Selkie returns from the memory and finds herself in the arms of her commander and lover, Subcommander Thokal. She says she was remembering back to when she first came to Firefall. She is happy to be back in his arms. Thokal asks if she was in another's arms while on her undercover mission. She says no, but Thokal pulls a gun out and puts it to her head. He asks why she has continued to delay flaying the Betazoid. That is the next logical step in figuring out how his telepathic abilities work. She successfully convinces Thokal she is trying to get Edom's secrets before they damage him beyond any use. A call for Thokal comes in telling him the prisoners have escaped. Scene cuts to the laboratory, where Omega Squad and a few friends are turning off the machine Edom is connected to and extracting the probes from his head. Edom is groggy, but coming around. Holokith, the lizard lady they met in a previous issue, tells Zun to use the signaling device the undercover Romulan gave to get them beamed out of here. Nag explains to Edam the signaling device will let Sarteth, an agent of the reunification movement, know to beam them out. Edam says, not without Tapril. Decker tells him he is crazy. She almost made you a vegetable. Edam says he probed every nook and cranny of Tapril's mind before getting jexed up and saw both Selkie and Tapril in there, the two women in one body. They are crying for our help. He tells them she has been trying to help them. Even when she was torturing Edam, she was delaying him from being dissected. The Romulan professor tells them all that Edam is right. Selkie is a kind, passionate woman. She has been twisted by Thokal, but that manipulation can be undone. As he turns to leave, he is disintegrated. Thokal has entered the room with Selkie and guards. Selkie is distraught over the professor's murder. Zun tries to use the signaling device, but nothing happens. Thokal tells her that the signaling device is a fake, and turns to disintegrate Sarteth, who is still posing as one of Thokal's personal guards. Thokal goes on, The only thing I still don't know is who sent the transmission that informed the underground about you prisoners. Thokal gives the order to kill them one at a time until they start talking. Start with the Ferengi. Zun moves in front of Nog and tells them to wait. We do not know who sent the transmission. Selkie admits to having sent the message. Thokal wonders aloud whether expunging the Vulcan mind from Selkie is the right way to go or simply kill her. Zun tells Thokal she doubts his ego will allow him to admit failure by killing his greatest project. Thokal observes that Trill speaks as if she knows him, but how can that be? Ah, perhaps the symbiote is, is in the... 
ah, perhaps the symbiote is in this new female body, is his old friend from so many years ago? The one that made all this possible? Welcome home, my friend. Zun says she does not know what he is talking about, but asks him if he is familiar with the ancient Earth story of the Trojan horse. Meanwhile, in Nog's impounded Ferengi shuttle, a control display is counting backwards. It reaches zero-zero, and a detonator tied to the ship's antimatter containment pods is activated. Boom! Zund and her group take advantage of the expected distraction and take down as many of Thokal's guards as they can. Armed with their rifles... A firefight begins that is quickly ended when Zund orders concentrated fire on the floor beneath Thokal and his remaining guards. They all drop except for Thokal, who fights to maintain his balance. He drops the signaling device that is still Omega Squad's only ticket out of Dodge. Selkie catches it before it drops into the abyss. Thokal wants Selkie to make good her escape while they can. Selkie just stands there. Selkie gives Zun the signaler and tells Zun they can undo Thokal's sabotage that disabled the signaler. She says she has no place with them anymore. She, they, have no place anywhere. Selkie runs off. Most of Omega Squad and the Lizard Lady go after Selkie. Matt, Yoshi, and Zund stay behind. Selkie runs and runs and runs more until she has reached the top of Firefall. She says if the only peace she can know is the peace of oblivion, then so be it. Stop! Astron tells her he will try his best to use his telepathic powers to help her to reconcile the two minds within her. She realizes that despite all she has done to hurt these people, Astron still loves her. Thokal appears from behind rocks with his gun drawn. He makes a play for Selkie also. He knows Selkie. He says he can save her. Selkie is caught between two worlds again, as she has been for months. Astron thinks this is just what she does not need. This could push her literally over the edge. Edom makes a heartfelt case for her to come back to the Academy. Thokal makes his play, saying that she will not destroy herself. She will not listen to them. She will listen to him. He is her master. He created her. Then Decker shows up, doing a convincingly eloquent Kirk impression, telling her that Camilla said Starfleet is all about bringing sentients together peacefully. That sounds just like what she needs right now. Selkie to Prill turns away from the edge and starts to walk towards Decker. Thokal screams that Selkie is mine or no one's. He fires at Selkie, but Edom's psychic power unleashes itself on Thokal and throws off his aim. However, the directed energy blast hits at Selkie's feet and hurls her over the edge. As she plummets to her death, Zund activates the repaired signaling device, and they all begin to glow in a familiar way. Transport initiated. Zund and the rest find themselves in the transporter room of a small Romulan ship under control of the reunification movement. T'Prill materializes on the pad, too. Lizard Lady says, Great! Can we get out of here now? They break orbit, but quickly acquire a Romulan patrol ship on their tail. 
They make it across the neutral zone, but their pursuer is not giving up. They are outmatched in firepower by the pursuing ship. Luckily, a Voyager-class ship enters the area and fires on the non-responsive Romulan pursuit vessel. The Romulans wisely turn tail and run while the refugee Romulan vessel is brought on board the Sagan. Later on the Sagan, a gathering takes place in the mess hall, where Edam continues to try to bring Tapril slash Selkie out of their self-loathing. Zun finds out from Captain Stewart that Admiral Brand had her watch Yoshi and Nog from a discreet distance. Zund wonders why the Admiral had faith in Yoshi and Nog despite the overwhelming evidence Omega Squad was dead. The scene cuts to Starfleet Academy where Brand and Boothby, the gardener, have a chat. It was Boothby that convinced the Admiral they were still alive. Scene cuts to Thokal, who is by the side of T'Pril's dead body. He looks at her with wild eyes, saying he will never let her go. Never! Scene cuts back to the Sagan, where Omega Squad is together, realizing that as long as they stick together and cover each other's back, odds are they will overcome the unknown dangers that await them, out there, in the black. The End The ending with the Romulan subcommander was very interesting. It wasn't it. So what did he mean by all that? I don't know. But it kind of leaves the door open, doesn't it? Right, because we both we both had some theories as to why the body was in stasis, since they they actually mentioned that they did. I mean, why bother putting it in stasis? Huh? Right. I mean, what do you need the body anymore for? It's dead, and the Katra is inside of Selkie. Right. I don't know if we're ever going to get that resolved. Tell you the truth, doesn't well, look doesn't look good. We yeah. got one more issue left. Exactly. And issue 19 probably does not bring Thokal back again, but who knows? So what do you figure, like a Bride of Frankenstein thing? Somehow he animates the body? Uh, well, I told you what I thought. I thought they were going to somehow get Tapril's Katra back into that body. And I agreed. I thought the same thing, but they didn't do that. They didn't do it. And I'm kind of glad, well, glad they didn't. I like this, uh, this hybrid personality. Oh, right. I mean, you can understand how it will continue to always be a challenge for her. Uh, I mean, two personalities, two people in one body. But as long as Selkie stops being nasty Romulan and goes back to being a little bit more like the professor said she was, because there's really no evidence of that (laughs) um, in what we've seen of her so far. Mm, Well... Yeah, well, in I mean, the silky personality, she we don't see her as being nice at all. At all, and I yes, she's been influenced by Thokal, but you know that actually nice Romulan that the professor talks about, haven't seen her. But I mean, she did she did contact the resistance and things like that. The yeah, reunification, she so she did. But is that Prill's personality coming through, or is it the nice person Selkie? Right, right. We don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe you're right. But kind of hard to tell. It is hard to tell. Right. And you know what else is hard to tell? What? That the uh, lizard lady is a lady. Well, you know, quite frankly, in my synopsis, I referred to her as the lizard man. 
and I probably should have continued saying that because it isn't until the next issue that we find out that it's actually a lady. Well, they said last issue that it was. Oh, did they? Yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't pick up on it uh, in the last issue, so I was still thinking it was a man because, quite frankly, it looks like a man. There, (laughs) there ain't much female about this thing. I mean, even even super muscular uh, Pava. I mean, you can tell she's a girl, and uh, and thank God for it. But um, <laughs> this uh, this creature from the Black Lagoon kind of amphibious lizard person, uh, there's no indication of female female femaleality to it in its personality or physically. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I guess it's next issue where we get to see her in an actual form-fitting outfit that shows off what she looks like because here she's just kind of always in the background and you don't see her but she does look like the creature from the black lagoon though in the face the head right yeah yeah but but even in the next issue when she's stomping around what deep space nine right. uh i don't get a lot of female shape there oh there's none yeah but but uh, that's what i'm saying it's more evident next issue that she doesn't look female than than this one because in this oh, one she's I always kind of covered right. up gotcha you know, right or in the background, so yeah. But yeah, so I don't right. know why they made her female. I don't know why gender would play a part in her character at all, one way or the other. I I don't know either. But I I thought it was kind of cool, just because it was like I wasn't expecting it. Right. I mean, from that standpoint. But right, unless you know they she came through the portal pregnant or something, and she's going to have lay some eggs or something, but I doubt that happens. <laughs> That's funny. Lay some eggs. Yeah, I, I, I guess she might. So anyway, so what did you think of the, the final resolution that uh, that she she ends up not killing herself and is a good guy, kind of? Were you uh, satisfied? Yeah. I guess that's what I'm asking. Were you satisfied with the three issues? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I was satisfied. Uh, I like it that that the ending was not what I expected it. I mean, I love being right, but I also like it when when they make the ending a little bit more of a surprise. So I kind of like that. Right? How about you? No, I liked it. Uh, I like I like it when surprises are, you know, still logical conclusions as opposed to some of the surprises we get where they just coming out of left field. Uh-huh. But this one was a good one. I mean, it was, you know, this is the 16th issue. We've known pretty early on that something was up with Tapril. So, uh, I, you know, I don't feel like they uh, misled us at all. Or and, and I think the payoff was pretty good. Yeah. And definitely they tee it up for more interesting stuff to happen with this character this way. Right. Yeah. In the future. If there was a future, which there isn't much of a future. but Not, but not much of one. Right. So the professor by biting it the way he did, that was a surprise to me. That was a surprise. But as soon as I saw the professor and the lizard man slash lady, you know, the first thing I thought, especially as they were, they became buddies and were kind of like going around, I, I was thinking, these guys are expendable. If anybody's going to die, it's going to be these guys. Right. I just thought it was funny he died mid-conversation. <laughs> right. Yeah, that part of it was unexpected. <laughs> It was very, well, it was very definitive and 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 out of left field, right? 
reminded me a lot of uh, Deep Blue Sea, I think is what it was called, with, with Samuel L. Jackson and the Sharks. Did you ever see that one? Oh, right. Yeah, I did. Where like, yeah, he's but... giving that big motivational speech and then just, I don't know where the shark eats him. <laughs> right. Just it, the, this kind of reminded me. He just he's just talking it. Ah. Exactly. <laughs> you think he's going to be the uh, the hero, but it turns out to be the lady. Right. Right. And then another one like that was Piranha. Piranha 3D was it 3D? Yeah. Piranha, where the guy at the end from uh, Parks and Recreation ends up eating it at the very end. Which, when, when, which guy when from they, Parks and Recreation? Um, the guy who's married to the lead character. I forgot I forgot her name. The young guy, you know, dark hair. He's in Parks and Recreation. He's married to uh, Pollock or the, the, the mayor of the place. Huh. I, I don't, anyway, I don't, so... I don't remember that in Piranha 3D. Well, okay, so he was the guy that was kind of sort of a budding love interest of the sheriff. The female sheriff. Oh, okay. Anyway, at the very end, oh, they realize... Like the, the giant piranha comes and gets him? Right? Well, exactly, because they okay. realize at the end that... Well, boy, we're way off in the, in the weeds, <laughs> but they realize that these piranhas that have been terrorizing them the entire time are babies. And then That's they right. say, oh, well, if they're babies, then where's the mom? And then the huge piranha comes and just bites them right off the right. boat. Yes. yes, I remember that now. Yeah, there's another shock ending. Oh, so. Or an unexpected development in a narrative. <laughs> right. Which, that was a very schlocky movie, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, it I knew mean, it was sh- schlocky and reveled in it. Right, unlike Sharknado, which ah! tried to do the same thing and didn't succeed. Well, some people liked it. Some people did. I, I thought it was fine for what it was, but it was ridiculous. I mean, it was bad ridiculous. Right. Where Piranha 3D, I thought was... Ridiculous, but still, but funny. still good. Yeah, right. Yep. So, anyways, let's let's rein it back into uh, Star Trek land. Then let's do. So, a surprise, another surprise point in the issue was when Nog shuttle exploded. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and I love the boom. That's a great panel, which is mostly taken up by the word boom. Right. I didn't really care for the you know the Three Stooges like Romulans that were poking around in the shuttle and, and making yeah. their wisecracks and yeah, I, laughing it up. Yeah, I didn't even mention them. <laughs> I mean, they, they really were irrelevant to the storyline. I mean, they they look like, you know, two Moes, Mo Howards, you know, just nah. yucking it up here. They're actually, like, laughing so hard, they're wiping tears out of their eyes. Right, they're, then, they're laughing at the Ferengi, thinking that they could get away with something. And then he just blows them up. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and the one guy's got quite a gut on him. So oh, yeah, the, the first, the the standing one, the the taller guy, or at least I, yeah, I guess one guy's standing, one guy's not. But um, he's got a bit of a gun on him, yeah. hmm. which is you don't see that much, like ever, on the Romulans that we see. He really enjoys the the fried Romulan food. Exactly, Romulan ales. A few too many Romulan ales, maybe. <laughs> All right, my last comment is I really liked the opening scene with the dream inside of a dream kind of thing. Right. With Tapril skeleton like that right. that was awesome visual. And then I really liked on the, you know, it's it's, you know, two-page spread and then on on one half you see that 
visual falling into the falls. And then you just move your eyes over a little bit. You see her again, but this time she's wearing this really cute green dress and again near the falls. And I just like like the two of them together. One, one, one side, zombie. Other side, cute green dress. Same person. Mm-hmm. Right. So it was a cool visual or yeah. a cool little flow of the, the narrative. Cool. I agree. So I've got a few points to make. I'll try to make them quick. On the cover, I really like the depth of field thing they did. Because of the depth of field where Selkie, who's in the foreground, is razor sharp, while the rest of Omega Squad is kind of out of focus in the background, I thought that was really cool. It focuses your attention on T'Pril going down with still having her friends in the background. And obviously, this is all drawn. For them to have the background a bit out of focus, you know, that took effort for them to do that. I'm glad they did it. I mean, I don't remember seeing that much. I mean, depth of field kind of things. Right. In comics, it's like the backgrounds is usually, it may not be as detailed in the background, but it's usually always in focus. You know, the whole thing, the whole picture's in focus. They purposely had the background out of focus. I thought that was a nice detail. Agreed. Yeah. The Romulan pistols look incredibly like old school Federation phasers, which I thought, I always thought that was kind of interesting. I don't know why they did it that way, but I, I just thought I'd mention it. It's, it's really kind of cool. And man, Thokal really loved his pistol. I mean, wow. he's got that thing pulled out almost, you know, on almost every panel you see him, he's got a pistol in his hand pulled out, threatening people. Yep, and then they shoot it out of his hand later. <laughs> right. That, that's yeah. probably why he loses, because he like, gets shot and he's like, oh, my disruptor. Oh, my God. That's the source of my power. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, very Cisco kid, uh, Lone Ranger kind of thing to happen. Right. Something that is another example, again, of something I've said in the past, so I'll try not to belabor the point too much, but at the end of last issue, Decker's freaking out, saying, Edama's dead! You know, without even checking a pulse. Right. Um, and he's got, like, 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 20 probes in his head, you know? And everything looks like, oh, my God, oh, my God! You know, so it's like a big cliffhanger thing. They make it look like, oh, my God, Edom, maybe he's dead, whatever. And at the beginning of this issue... I don't even think they acknowledged anything was in his head. I mean, did they actually show, maybe in the first shot of Edom on the, on the bench that they have in this issue, you know, maybe they hint at there being some probes in his head, but as soon as they shut that thing off, you know, he's like sitting up and there's nothing in his head. There's, right. there's, no, there's no wounds, there's no little dots in his head like he was trying to get a hair transplant, nothing. <laughs> Right. And and he's kind of groggy, but before long, he's back from having like 20 or 30 probes in his head and, you know, going through whatever kind of process Selkie put him through. So, again, right. an example of making it look like everything's lost in the one issue, and then like, pop, everything's much better with no explanation in the next. Or right. minimal explanation. Minimum, yeah. I, I'm not crazy about that. Yeah. Well, Decker at least said, he's alive. Well, so at least, at least he, they acknowledged that he thought he was dead. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm not crazy about that. But. No, I agree. It, it, was, it was a bait and switch. Exactly. That's exactly the right phrase. Bait and switch. Okay. And, uh, yeah, that's it. I'm done with my comments. Done? Done. Next. All right. 
so the next issue is uh, issue number 17. It came out April of 1998, entitled Culture Clash. The writer is Chris Cooper, penciler John Royal, inker Tom Wigson, Wiggerson, letterer Jim Novak, colorist Kevin Somers, editor Bobby Chase, editor-in-chief Bob Harris, and Star Trek created by Gene Roddenberry. So the cover has a caption that reads, It's T'Pril versus Silky, and in this case, murder equals suicide. And the visual is actually a really cool visual. It shows Silky in her Romulan uniform grappling at a slightly transparent form of T'Pril, and she's wearing her Starfleet Academy uniform. So it's actually kind of a, a cool visual of the two similar-looking people. So the story starts off on Deep Space Nine. Most of Omega Squad has been assigned some temporary quarters there on the station, while Zun and Edam return to Pril to Vulcan to have her Katra situation sorted out. The large reptilian female named Halgrith who, as we mentioned earlier, joined the team officially, is throwing a fit about having to share a room with Yoshi. She states she will never share a space with his kind and storms away. Decker, Yoshi, and Nog are left wondering what Yoshi could have done to upset her so much. And we have no idea where Pava is staying. And also, I have some questions about the sleeping arrangements with uh, when there's two boys and two girls and you could just team them up together. But we'll talk about that later. Meanwhile, back on Vulcan, T'Pril's parents greet T'Pril, Zun, and Edam. T'Pril is actually very pleased to see her parents, and she rushes up towards them and gives them a hug, even though, you know, they're not her real parents. T'Pril's parents, with their Vulcan calmness, simply state that this Romulan woman is not their daughter. Almost immediately, T'Pril is taken to the Vulcan priestess Talathin. Talathin asks who is in control of T'Pril's body. Is it T'Pril herself or the Romulan persona, Selkie? Talanthony starts a mind meld to sort it all out and to remove T'Pril's Katra. Watching nearby, Adam tells Zund that something is not right. Back on Deep Space Nine, we finally find out why Halketh hates Yoshi so much. It seems that Yoshi prefers the company of other men, and Halketh finds this to be unnatural. Everyone is surprised at this since sexual orientation is not a big deal in the 24th century. But for Halketh, who is new to this part of the galaxy, is, it is still very much a taboo subject. Back on Vulcan, Talanth breaks her connection with T'Pril, stating that there's just too much conflict. Adem tells her that they must do what they can, and he projects himself and Talanth back into T'Pril's mind. There, they watch images of T'Pril and Selkie battle to the death. Each time one of them lands a strike on the other, they both show and feel the damage. Back on Deep Space Nine, Yoshi complains to Sisko that Halgith should not be allowed in the Starfleet Academy because she hates gay people. Sisko points out that she's entitled to her own opinion, and until her actions are contrary to the Starfleet ideals, he will do nothing about it. He also points out that it wasn't too long ago that Yoshi treated Nog negatively because he was a Ferengi. And he asks, how is this any different? In a workout room that we've never seen on the show, 
Pava tells Halkith about the open-mindedness of the species within the Federation. She also points out that there will be a lot of alien customs that she will not agree with, but she will have to tolerate them when dealing with alien cultures and civilizations. Back into Prill's mind, Adem throws some cold water on the two identical women to stop them from killing each other. He tells them that they must coexist in order to move forward. They are so intertwined that they can never live without the other one. Back in a Deep Space Nine holodeck, Decker tricks Yoshi and Halgith into meeting one another. There, he shows them a recreation of a species who, at some point in their history, learned how to fly. Some of the people refused to allow themselves to fly, thinking that it would be against their god, and the others refused to stop flying. Eventually, the species split. The two cadets see his point, and they agree to work together, even though they may not agree with the other one's beliefs. On Vulcan, T'Pril wakes up. She has made peace with her warring halves. She is now the amalgamation of T'Pril and Selkie. Zund is pleased with this, and sees it as something very similar to the symbiotic relationship she experiences. T'Pril tells everyone to continue to refer to her as T'Pril, and to everyone's surprise, T'Pril's parents accept her as their own daughter. Later, Omega Squad has been reunited and is back on Earth. Zund informs them that Halgith has officially been accepted into Starfleet Academy, and that she will join Nebula Squad along with Yoshi. Also, she asks Adem in private to keep an eye on T'Pril. The issue then finishes with T'Pril, Decker, and Pava flying through the sky in what I assume is a holodeck adventure. The end. Well, that final shot with the flying cadets is very uh, superhero-like, isn't it? It is. It's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, kind of weird. Yeah, it's it's very... I mean, this is a comic book, so actually seeing people flying like superheroes is kind of appropriate. But I thought... You'll remember that there was a Voyager issue, comic issue, where they were flying with the Warrior Sisters or whatever in that whole Leviathan storyline we did... Uh, a few episodes ago. Yep. And they were all like, this is cool. And uh, Paris and everybody's like having a great time as they're flying in a, some kind of a simulation and like battling each other, that kind of thing, in some kind of good-natured game kind of thing. And here it is. They're flying like a normal thing uh, on the holodeck. So it's like, well, okay. So of course they could have done that on the holodeck, I guess, on Voyager. So I thought right. that was kind of interesting that they're taking the same idea but making it as kind of like uh well sure you can do it right yeah um, don't even make a big deal out of it just they're just doing it no exactly right now fi- again physically like when they were diving uh, on another voyager issue they're they simulated diving i was like what's going on there and then you reminded me about a voyager episode where balana had done a high high height yeah, sub, jump a suborbital jump there you go. There you go. So I still don't know how all that ha- can work on a hollow deck, but okay, fine. Uh, I, I think it's cool. It's cool, and it and it actually the end makes more sense about that lame example Decker came up with to try to, you know, an allegory or whatever you want to say about uh, tolerance or whatever. Because when he was saying it was like, what the heck sense does this make? <laughs> I will say that, that that to me was the the weakest part of the story is yeah. the explanation 
or his yeah his, his analogy just just I don't get it. I mean, yeah. How I mean, if you if you really feel that strongly against somebody's beliefs, then then why would knowing that some species split off into two different cultures because one learned how to fly and the other ones refused to learn how to fly? Yeah, that's make I don't I don't get it. Explain it to me, Ken. Well, it makes some sense, but I think it's a big stretch. Would you put aside your prejudices just because of hearing that story? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. You were supposed to say, I don't have any prejudices, Donovan. <laughs> we all do, whether we admit to it or not. <clears throat> anyway, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. I thought that was a weak bit. Right. Now, as far as, you know, uh, the sexual orientation storyline and stuff, right. I mean, I did think it was funny that it wasn't too long ago that we we both kind of thought that Yoshi was being had some characteristics uh, and we weren't sure if, you know, he was hitting on Decker or not at one point. <laughs> and then, but you know, we were like, well, maybe we're just reading too much into it. So obviously right. we weren't because maybe they were planting that, that earlier Seed. on. Right. But, uh, you know, I agree. Sexual orientation should not be a big deal, you know, now or in the future, right. but it is a little <laughs> odd that he is the only gay character that I know of, you know, uh, in the comic books or in the TV shows, um, I mean, has, has there ever been one before him that, that you can think of? Definitely in the shows or the movies. Well, okay, in the show, no. Even though they do, I mean, George Takei talks about how that was something that supposedly he and Roddenberry talked about at one point. But, and Roddenberry said, oh, ho, 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 too early, too early. We're not going to tackle that one supposedly. But there was a, what, New Voyages? I forgot what they call it exactly. Or, um, so, fan-made fiction. Right. There is an episode of the fan-made uh, video where they do talk about Kirk's nephew, nephew. Yeah. right, who turns out to be gay. And he's in Starfleet Academy, and that's what this is all about. I'm, I, I think Peter David wrote that. Did I get that right? I think it's Peter. It's some well-known author, and I'm pretty right. sure it's Peter David, actually wrote that for them. And I guess it's because, oh boy, I sure hope I get this. I have this right. Anyway, whoever wrote it is gay himself. So that was part of the motivation to write that episode, that script that they went ahead and produced. So other than that, which is obviously not canon, it's, right. it's fan-generated stuff. Other than that, I... I don't know of any uh, Star Trek story that tackled the gay thing. Right. So I didn't know that Peter David wrote any of those, but I, you know, he does come out with the, the New Voyages, or not New Voyages, um, New Frontier novels. Yes. Captain mm-hmm. Calhoun. Yep, right. Um, and, and in that, one of his characters is um, transgender or something that, that deals with, you know, someone who looks male, but... You know, is actually female. Is actual female and, and yeah. things like that. So, if if he did write that, then I mean it, it's not out of nowhere because he's he's dealt with similar issues in his novels. Right. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I just cool. I just you know I hate that they have to beat you over the head with it that it's all okay, but maybe they do need to do that kind of stuff to let you know. I don't know. I just I, could there have been a subtler way than to do this issue than 
and just beat you on the head with it? Uh, well, sure, of course, they could have. It's a source of conflict, though, and conflict tends to spice up stories. But, uh, you know, obviously the story had an agenda, which you could say is bad or good, but um, it was it was rather heavy-handed. Right. I agree with that. No, I just like, uh, like in the original series with, with Kirk and Ahura kissing and, and that being a taboo thing at the time. Sure. They didn't make a big deal out of it. It, it happened and... Why wouldn't yeah, it happen kind of thing, right? Right. So, I, I don't know. Part of me kind of wishes that they wouldn't have made her such a homophobic character and, you know, it come out that, yo, she's gay. And, of course, he's gay. why wouldn't he be? You know, kind of thing. That that I don't know. Maybe that would have been a, a more subtler way to introduce it and, you know, not draw too much attention that we, we I don't know. Yeah, I don't. You see what I'm saying? I just, yeah, I know what you're saying. It's a little sure. heavy-handed. I don't. I don't mind the story, and I, and I liked. I like where they're going with it, but right. We'll yeah. we'll see. Hopefully, it'll go somewhere, and and they won't never bring back uh, Nebula Squad again. <laughs> we only got two more issues after this, so yeah, it's probably right. So she's off to uh, join Nebula Squad, which I find is fascinating because that's exactly where Yoshi's like the leader of Nebula Squad, right? Right. So I think it's. Fascinating that they chose to make that assignment for even more fun and, and friction in the future. But right, it, it well, is or, funny. Oh, go ahead. Because I think even though they said, "Okay, we'll we'll try to get along," you know, it's like, come on. I mean, right. you, you you don't just change like that. I mean, you know, there's still feelings under there. You just don't get rid of those. Right. I mean, change takes time. It doesn't just happen immediately. So uh, I think it still uh, is going to have some conflict in Nebula sure. Squad, but yeah. But maybe we'll find out next issue. Or, uh, maybe. Uh, well, I know maybe. we won't find out next issue, but maybe issue nineteen. Okay, so you have you have read the last issue? I have not. I'm just saying. Oh, I know okay. that it's not this Klingon one that we're going to talk about here in a second. Oh, oh, next issue as opposed to the last yeah, one. Yeah, right. completely, completely agreed. Yeah, the next issue takes a whole new storyline. Right. It really has nothing to do with the, with what's gone here. It, it actually is quite a nice break, quite frankly. Yeah, I just wish the story was, was a better. better. Yeah, yeah. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, As back know. to this one, uh, I do find it funny how diverse Omega Squad and Nebula Squad are. I mean, when you watch Star Trek, you know because it's made by humans. You know because sure. that's all that really is a guess, but. <laughs> <laughs> But because we're all well, human, and, and most of the characters tend to be human. But here in Nebula Squad, everybody's a different species. And right. also in or Omega Squad, every, every character is a different species. And in Nebula Squad, every character is a different species. We have, you know, Cardassians and lizard people and, and, you know, just a lot more diversity here in the comics than we ever got in the actual episodes. Sure. Because if yeah, you remember Red Squad, all humans, Wesley Crusher and everybody else was human. Sure. Yeah, and to some degree that might be budgetary concerns, oh, especially on the original show, where Klingons really didn't look that much different from humans. But, yeah, you're right. Tend to be very homo sapien-centric, which I thought that was kind of interesting. Was it Star Trek VI, where they make reference to that? A homo sapiens, the Federation is a homo sapiens club, uh, yeah, only uh, club or something. Right, yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So, yeah, I, I like the greater variety that they have in these, these comics. Yep. 
and the artwork I loved. I, lo- I love this artwork. Yeah, the artwork is very good. Uh, nice, nice detail. Of course, everybody is incredible godlike bodies without being stupidly muscular like some of those uh, early next gen comics. Those original DC ones, yeah, right. Yeah, those were really ridiculous. But everybody's uh, you know perfectly shaped, very attractive young people. But yes, the artwork is quite good. Quite now, good. And we can mention um, the lizard lady because she is wearing a Starfleet uniform, which is very form-fitting. Yes. You know, her body type is male. I mean, we don't... Yeah, there's a little curvature to the hips, but not much. Not That could easily be a man. Right. And if you think about it, I mean, you look at the chest area on, on a... Uh, and, and on a woman, and you're like, okay, that's a woman. But lizard shouldn't have busty chests because they don't produce milk to feed their young. So it kind of makes sense that a female lizard reptilian character would be, you know, well, good point. More in line with with a male uh, body type, right? Good you don't point. ever see that. I mean, because you look at Doctor Who, all the all the lizard ladies are are very busty. Maybe not very busty, but they got them. They're very right. feminine, right? So I, I liked and, and didn't like like that at the same time in this issue. Yeah, yep. That's a very good point. I hadn't thought about that. That whole like lizards wouldn't have mammillary glands. Exactly. Good point. And cat people should have like you know six. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. My last comment on this issue, because I don't really have all that much to say about it, but Jake. Jake was in it. Jake Sisko. And I just think that he was really just kind of stuck in there. I didn't think he was critical to the story in any way, shape, or form. And I thought he was just kind of a an ancillary character thrown in there for Spice. He was, to me, it was just, he had a few comic release uh, type comments. So when it comes out, Yoshi's gay, he's like, hey, you sly dog, who's the lucky guy? And then later when Pava implies that maybe she's had some same gender relationships, he, he's all like, uh, I need to, can you give me more information for, for the readers? You know, because he's writing a story. Right. I mean, that's it. Two, two kind of comic relief lines and that's, that's it. Yeah. Is that what you were going to say? Sorry. Yeah. Well, that, that's basically it. So that's really all I had to say on this one. Okay. All right. Um, let's see. Let's see if I had anything else. Um, just back to the holodeck analogy with the uh, flying people. Sure. They all looked exactly the same, right? I mean, was that intentional that they were supposed to all look, you know, all oh, the we, men? You were, mean their poses? Yeah. Well, they're all they're bald, bald, blue men. And then there's like one woman with long black hair or... She's in there more than, more than once, but just seemed that there was two types. Man, bald, woman, black hair, oh. same facial features. <laughs> right. And uh, that was it. Just just seemed odd that everybody looked the same. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess you're right. Now that you mention it, I really didn't, me- I didn't, really didn't notice that much. You were too busy trying to figure out. What point does this? What have to point do is this? <laughs> what point is this making? Yeah, exactly. I, I did roll my eyes a little bit when 
they, they talked about a species just learned how to fly, you know, Superman right. style. I was just like, uh. I like that in comic books, but not really in Star Trek. Exactly. Although it does look kind of cool. I mean, when they're doing it at the end. Well, yeah, at the end, because they're in, they're in a holodeck. They're not a species that suddenly evolved the ability to fly without any type of lift or anything. Yeah, they use their their they learned how to use their telekinetic powers. They actually say that? Yeah. Okay. So, apparently they're able to use telekinesis to move like glasses of water when you're laying in a hospital bed. Sure. Uh to be able to lift yourself, I guess. That at least that seemed like that's what they were insinuating. Mm. Well, that makes sense. I've always wondered why Professor X doesn't just get up and start walking around because he can pick himself up telepathically. Oh, can he? Is that part of his powers too? T- uh, telekinesis? Oh, cool. I thought, I thought he had telekinesis. Well, maybe, I, maybe you've I'm read wrong. more X-Men than I have. <laughs> well, I don't think Patrick Stewart's ever showed it on the movies, but I, I, thought, right. I thought Professor X was... I thought he had telekinesis, but I might be wrong. That would be cool. Maybe we'll find out in a couple issues when, or a couple episodes when we do our big Star Trek X-Men crossover. Cool. Which, by the way, I'm looking forward to just from the standpoint that it seems so unlikely. Right. To see how how they pull it off. Should be good, I think. I I read them back when they were new, so Mm -hmm. it'll be nice to revisit them. Cool. All right, anything else for this issue? Nada. All right. All right, so issue number 18 is titled Manghom Kuda. I have no idea whether I did that right. Published date, May 1998. Manuscript, Chris Cooper. Visuals, Chris Renault. Inker, Andy Landing. Colors, Kevin Summers. Letterer, Jim Novak. Editor, Bobby Chase. Editor-in-Chief, Bob Harras. Translation Coordinator, Dr. Lawrence Schoen. Translation Editor, Chip Carter. The cover shows the face of a snarling female Klingon warrior with her batleth at the ready. She says, Buy this book or I'll come to your house. The cover says it's the English language edition as opposed to the other edition which is supposedly written in Klingon which I'm not quite sure how well that works because I don't have one of those but that sounds kind of interesting and makes more sense with the translation people credits. The issue opens with Biasal challenging Krung to battle for the leadership of the first cadre. He accepts the challenge, but loses when Biasal uses a micro-dart hidden under her tongue and launched into Krug's face just at the right time. She follows up by using Krung's own knife to knife him to death. The rest of the first cadre cheer to her victory. When another Klingon female runs up to Krung and calls Biasal out as a dirty fighter with no honor, Warung lunges himself at her in defense of his new leader. Master Krog enters and proclaims the use of microdarts from here forward to be banned, but Biasal's victory will stand. Master Karg shows video of the battles where Dominion ships are destroying Klingon ships. He says the war with the Dominion does not go well. The first cadre say they want a piece of that fight. Master Krog says they are not that desperate, at least not yet. 
The master leaves, and the first cadre begins scheming as to how they can get into that fight. One of their numbers suggests obtaining the sword of Kalis. Kalis was the greatest of all Klingon warriors, who was able to unite the entire Klingon race under his rule for the first time ever. His sword was lost to the ages, but if it could be found, they could restore their honor. When Kovald killed Camila Goldstein in that duel, the entire cadre was discommendated. Finding the sword could undo all that, but no one knows where it is. Makri says he knows where to look for it. They decide to start their quest. BSL contacts Kovald over subspace and tells him she will have the sword of Kalis. She tells him of a rumor that Makri told them about honorless Jemhadar having found it in the Gamma Quadrant. Their ship was disabled in battle. They crashed just inside Federation space on a planet called Rajak 6. She transmits the coordinates to Kovald and asks him to meet them there. They end transmission. Kovald thinks to himself, this all sounds way too easy. He is called over to dig by another Klingon who is trying to release a green glowing rock out of a cliff face. The rock begins to glow a blinding green light. Scene cuts to the first cadre in their cloaked bird of prey. They are in orbit around Rajak 6. There are several Federation ships in orbit and human life signs on the planet. BSL says the Federation are their allies in the war, so there should be no issues if they run into any Federation people. But they still need to be ready for anything. They beam down and slog through the swamp of a world. Finally, they come upon a crashed Jem'Hadar ship, just like in the rumor. They enter and notice their hand scanners are picking up erratic readings. They don't care because across from some Jem'Hadar bodies is a box with an object inside. As Biasol reaches out for the Batleth of Kalis, it dissolves in her hands. It is a hologram. The Jem'Hadar from the ground are up and pointing Federation phasers at them, saying they are under arrest. The Jem'Hadar faces morph into human faces. Starfleet. It's Omega Squad. Decker tells them Pava knew exactly what rumor to spread to bait the first cadre back into Federation space. Biasol laughs and says Omega Squad apparently wants more of their ranks to die. Pava is ready to kill them where they stand, but Decker says justice will be served, not vengeance. Ensign Lee enters the room and tells Omega Squad to lower their weapons. The Klingons are their allies. That is exactly the distraction that triggers the Klingons to attack. Tapriel almost takes a knife thrown at her head. The Klingons jump at Omega Squad. Decker is in a bear hold by a Klingon that thinks he has him. Decker shoots the Klingon point-blank with his phaser and proves the Klingon wrong. Warg, with the metal lower jaw and upper teeth, attacks Tapril and is in her face, driving her backwards. In seconds, the Vulcan is able to reactivate the ship's power and bring down a live, severed cable that fries her Klingon attacker. Astrin takes out his Klingon attacker by countering his every move that the telepath knows before the move is made. Ensign Lee needs help 
and rescinds the order to not fire on the Klingons, as she is under relentless attack also. Edom drops Lee's attacker with a quick phaser blast. It's down to Pava and Biasal. Pava drops her phaser and takes Biasal on mano y mano. During the one-sided fight, Pava demands to know where Kovald is. Biasal is quickly beaten, but answers Pava that the sound of the ship outside is her answer. They leave the Jem'Hadar wreck that is ready to collapse, only to see a Klingon shuttle hovering above them. Astrun confirms Koval is on board the shuttle. Pava orders a nearby runabout's computer to beam her aboard the Klingon's shuttle. Decker tries to stop her, but Biasal says, let her go. It is high time she met her destiny. When Pava materializes on the ship, she shouts that Koval must face her. He does, but he is changed. His uniform is tattered. He is foaming at the mouth and running at Pava like a wild beast. And behind Koval, Pava sees a misshapen horror. Both internal and external parts of a Klingon arranged in a haphazard way in a roughly vertical pole configuration. To be continued. That is one horrific-looking thing at the end. It is. Obviously, that green light really messed up the one Klingon. That was too close. I mean, you see, like, his bones and stuff sticking out. It's kind of nasty. It's kind of nasty. It's kind of a little like, again, a reference you made to the... The Thing? The Thing. Sorry, I couldn't come. And, of course, that's the sequel one to the original one. That was long ago, so this was the one in the 80s, right? Uh, yeah, John Carpenter's The Thing. Right. Yeah. Of which um, there is yet another redo, which kind of sucked. I didn't like that more recent a, one. It was a prequel, but it was also called Just oh, The Thing. Oh, good point. Good point. And it really wasn't that good. I liked it. I thought it was all right. You did? Yeah. I, I, I wasn't too crazy about it. Uh, I like John Carpenter's the best. Now, I've never uh, seen the original, uh, what was it, Thing from Another World or something like that? Uh, I thought it was just the thing, but maybe it had a longer name. No, it had a longer name. Yeah, I, I've seen that one, and it was good. It was fine. It was, you know, you know, U.S. military up in the Antarctic, and they come into contact with this alien. Uh, but the alien, who, by the way, was played by James Arness. Yes, it was. Right, which is kind of interesting. So he, of course, was Marshall Dillon in the old Gunsmoke series. Um yeah, you know, he was more of a traditional alien, you know, a big guy, you know, a threat, a murderer, that kind of thing. Not at all the take that John Carpenter did. Anyway, the main point is, <laughs> when you finally see the alien in John Carpenter's version, it looks very nasty and weird and a little reminiscent of this guy. Right. Of this Klingon in this issue. Yep. So, they borrowed that from The Thing. Can you think of another scene in this issue that borrowed from another franchise? Well, I think the glowing green orb that they uncovered reminded me a bit of what happened in uh, Heavy Metal, the Uh, uh, movie Heavy Metal. The first one, yes. The original Heavy Metal movie, which, by the way, I loved that movie. That was a little bit about the, um, you know, there, there was the green glowing 
what did they call it exactly in that in that movie? It was the thing that was uh, it was like the the heart of a planet or intelligence of a planet or something. Who knows? That was traveling with incredible evil throughout the uh, universe. So that reminded me a little bit about that when there were some some alien like grunt kind of miners that had uncovered it from being underground for millennia, and then they picked it up and then they like dissolved. So that reminded me of that. Is there another one you were thinking of? Um, well, I was thinking of the guy with the metal mouth. He reminded me of mm. Jaws from James Bond. True. And then, okay. if I'm not mistaken, um, I think it was the Spy Who Loved Me um, James Bond movie. You know, mm-hmm. Roger Moore takes a live wire and stabs ah! it into Jaws's mouth. Oh yeah, okay. And here it is, uh, Tapril doing the same thing to to this bitey boy. Cool. Okay, I definitely had that Jaws uh, linkage when I saw the guy, the, the Klingon with like the whole lower jaw gone and replaced with metal. But I completely forgot about the uh, the Bond uh, shocky thing. Cool. Yep. And overall, I did not like the uh, the guy with the bite the the metal jaws. It, it was a little too comic booky for me. I like how he looked. Oh, he looked cool, but you. Wouldn't see that in the TV show, I don't think. Well. Didn't fit the the aesthetic of Star Trek for me. Okay. Kind of well, like the, yeah. those people with capes. They, they don't do it for me either. Ah! <laughs> that married couple with capes? Yeah, the Bickleys. On the bridge? The Bickleys, that's it. Oh, God, that, that was horrible. I thought the idea of a battle-damaged Klingon warrior having rough metal parts so he's got one of his eyes are messed up mm-hmm. uh probably some kind of bionic eye in there and then his whole lower jaw and upper teeth is replaced with metal uh, for those of you who don't, don't have the comic it's a little comic booky but the idea of the normally nasty looking klingon now having sharp metal teeth inside of a metal jaw i thought that was kind of cool but yeah, yeah it looked it, cool but yeah just, i don't know just doesn't scream Star Trek for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree with that. It's a comic book, though. But right. Yeah. I, I, if they did something like that, like in a real Star Trek movie, I think that would be cool, but obviously they would probably do it in something a little bit more believable. Right. In a way more believable. Because it's kind of rough. I mean, it, it's all smooth metal kind of thing, so it looks like it's just not, not very high tech. Right. Yeah, and he's still able to talk normal, even though he does have the little jaggedy word balloon, which implies that maybe he's... Sounding weird. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe a little synthetic. Right. So I, th- I thought overall, this was like um, the whole thing where Koval and his co-worker go in this, down this very evil-looking path with this alien thing that's co-opted them. It was like, what? What? It's like it's just a very odd right turn that also underscores the idea that sometimes these issues are so action packed and the narrative is moving so fast and is so like hyper, you know, hyper action that sometimes it's kind of weird. So you're talking about the the metamorphosis of the metamorphosis of the two at the end? Is that what you're talking about? Well, okay. So my first point is I thought that was a weird right turn to be making. Okay. Agreed. And then that is part of an overall thing, which is 
this this issue in particular is hyper action packed. I mean, you see all the conflict going on with the Klingons, and then you see the conflict going on with Omega Squad getting into the picture and actually getting a little payback. So I kind of like that for Camila's death. I kind of like that, even though the, the kind of Mission Impossible kind of scenario where they could engineer all this seems extremely unlikely. And then you got this other third element of conflict, which is the alien-controlled Cobalt. Uh, right. It's like, wow, boom, 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 you know. It's just like lots of things are happening. Right. Agreed. Yeah. And and can we talk about their uh, Mission Impossible (laughs) scenario? I mean, sure. How did they orchestrate that whole thing that, that, that these would be the only Klingons that found out that the Sword of Kalos was somewhere and to try to go get it? Right. And also, what's the deal about them being discommendated? It's like, I thought they were like hailed as heroes or something. It, Unofficially, you know, they were hailed as heroes, but, but officially they, they had to be reprimanded. Reprimanded. Okay, well, I don't remember the, the reprimanding part back in the early issue, in those previous issues where Camila was killed, but right. it was like, it seemed like a bit of a 180 to me, and maybe that's just because I, I missed some of what was said in the earlier issues. Now, the, the Klingon said, the Klingon told Zun that, uh, you know, officially they've been reprimanded, but... Behind closed doors, they're seen, they're being seen as heroes. So I didn't get from that conversation that that they've disbanded and have gone their separate ways. But well, you, yeah, discommendated. I mean, right. what does that really mean? I mean, they've lost their rank. They they have been disbanded. Is that? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And if they have been discommendated, how did they how did they get a uh, bird of prey? They're just laying around. Whatever. And I, and I definitely agree with your point about why would these be the only Klingons to take that bait? I would think there could be multiple sets of Klingons to take that bait. Right. Agree. Because yeah. if you're spreading a rumor, I mean, you're, you know, you have no idea where that rumor is going to go, or even if it gets told to the right people. Exactly. And you know? that you just happen to be there waiting on the ship when they happen to come. Exactly. That's the other point. Okay, so they they've got they happen to be on a detail that is doing uh, dealing with um, some crashed uh, Dominion ships. It's like, wow, that timing is amazing. Yeah, didn't really care for that part of the story. Little little too convenient. Right. I did love when the Klingons beam down to the planet, and there's like a flying frog jumping away from them and behind them is a giant snail just munching away on some mushrooms mm-hmm. that's like towering over them right it's a pretty cool visual yeah a little star warsy right yeah that does look good and ensign lee i think is her name yep uh nice to see her back yep you know she babysitted the uh the squad back when they dealt with um, Charlie X. Right. So here she is again, right. babysitting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when they don't have uh, Zund in the picture for whatever reason, uh, we have Ensign Lee coming to the, to the fore. Right. So how do you like the look of um, <coughs> Kalis's Batleth? Uh, it looks fine. A lot of little 
little scribbly things on it. Exactly. So it's like a like a Damascus uh, metal steel blade. They're like folded or whatever. It's it's very very fancy looking. Now the episode of Next Generation where Kalis is actually cloned and and brought back into the story. Right. Uh, where did they get the blood from him? Was it a was it a batleth or was it a some other type of dagger? I don't remember. I'm thinking dagger, but if it was anything, but I really don't know. I was just wondering if if it looked like that, you know, had the, those little details on it. Maybe. I think it's interesting where they've got the grips, though. So there's one grip in the middle. So as opposed to normal batlets, there's also grips further to the outside, so you can have a a more open hold on the weapon. Where this one, the grips are in the middle, which means you can only kind of grip it with your hands together kind of thing. Right. I'm not sure that that's a good... Well, it seems like an... Inf- not the best design, but... It was the very first... Uh, very first... Batleth ever Batleth? created. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Kalis oh. took a braid of his own hair, ah! dropped it into <laughs> a volcano, pulled it back out, and forged it into the first Batleth. Wow. I'm surprised you don't know this. I did not know that. Wow. I thought it was pretty common knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're funny. Yes. So, that, so, did, so did you just read that, or did you actually remember that? Oh, no, I remember From that. something. Okay. No, it, it, that's, I, I, I'm serious. I thought that was common knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, it is not common knowledge. At least I, for me. I'm assuming that it's mentioned in, in an episode, but if not, um, it was in a uh, – I think it was Michael Jan Friedman wrote a novel called Kalis. Uh-huh. And uh, in it, um, uh, Worf is telling Alexander the story of Kalis, and, and I remember very specifically him telling the story of the first Batleth, and that, that's where I was getting that from. So cool. if it's not in an actual episode, it's in that novel, but I'm okay. assuming the novel came from – a comment made in the show, so cool. I don't know which came first, to tell you the truth. Right. One Before of we started stories. getting, you know, hate mail. Hey, that's never mentioned. I'm telling you where I got it from. Exactly. You're acknowledging the possibility that it might have only come out in a, in a novel. But, right. Right. Yeah, it sounds like one of those things that uh, Worf would have told uh, Alexander or something. Right. In the show. So uh, I have a question. Yes. So when you're getting bear hugged by Klingon, yes, yes, and he's laughing at you, saying that you won't fire a phaser because it'll hurt I, I'm you. I'm too close. Yeah. Okay. And then you do. Should you not still be dam- take damage yourself instead of just having smoke billowing off of your clothes? I thought that. Ho- I agree with you. That whole thing didn't make sense to me at first. I thought Decker actually disintegrated him, but then it's like, no, he's on the ground. Okay. So did he stun him? That would be more the Starfleet thing to do. Heavy stun. But then why is there smoke coming from Decker's chest and the uh, Klingon? Right. Didn't make and, sense to me. Yeah, not only Decker's chest, but also coming from his back. So it, it went through him, but yeah. he didn't get stunned? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's just standing like, hey, yeah, yeah, I got your ass. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I got you. I got you. And it's like, he's... He's unaffected, except for the smoke coming off his body. It, right. Yeah, didn't make sense. Okay. Not, not a fan of that. Confusing. Yeah. Well, and the fact that 
the Klingon even pointed out how ridiculous this is going to be. Ha ha ha, you won't shoot me because it'll hurt you. Well, did he say that or that he's too close? You won't take chances. Uh, he says, you'll not risk injuring yourself. Oh. Humans don't take chances. Oh, is that what he says specifically? Yeah. Okay. I thought he said, just said something about being, I'm too close to you now or something. Okay. And then, cool. and then, but then what's funny is that then Decker makes a comment about his eye, which I was like, yeah, you have a bionic eye, but how does that fit into being able to take a phaser blast in the chest and not hurt, get hurt? It makes no sense. None! Confusing. Yeah. And I'm glad that the, uh, the Klingon general put an end to micro daggers. I mean, this will be the last time we ever have to see the ridiculousness of a micro dagger in your tongue. Thank you. Thank you. Who came up with micro daggers anyway? I'm sorry. I don't know, but why you had to do it again in order for it to get permanently banned. Right. Just, just don't ever bring it back up. Exactly. So, probably Chris Cooper came up with it. Damn it. <laughs> Very good artwork, though. I like the artwork. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. All right, what else you got, sir? Um, my last comment is, I do like the idea of them going back for justice, some payback for Camila dying. Because definitely, after it happened, you know, all these other things are going on, They it seems like they're just going to move on. But they they do hatch this plan, however outlandish it is and unlikely. They do hatch this plan, they do try to get justice. So I like the idea that they're going back for justice, but, you know... Obviously, it's pretty unlikely scenario. Right. Agreed. And I like that we're finally going to get a, you know, the, the former lovers, you know, get a confrontation there, even though he's now turned into a zombie of some sort. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, I think that's going to be interesting in the next issue, how that resolves. Now, again, big cliffhanger. Pava's on the ship. It's a small ship. And... Zombie Kovald is coming at her, and then you've got misshapen co-worker. Right. Guy. It looks like, uh, unless somebody else is following Pava, it looks like she's going to get killed. But, obviously that's not going to happen in the end, but they're sure making it look like it. Right. Yeah, she'll somehow save him, and then they'll be lovers again at the end, and the series will be over, and we'll never hear from him again. Period. The end. The end. Yeah. Well, I'm not so sure about them being lovers again, but definitely Pava's not going to die. So, yes, that sure. much I know. But yeah, and hopefully this this coworker of uh, of Kovalds. I mean, right. I hope he gets taken out of his misery because I don't see how they're going to be able to fix that. Yeah, and we don't know him at all, so I think you're right. He's highly likely to die, and maybe Kovald too, but. I, if anybody's going to survive of those two, it's going to be Kovald. No, my, my prediction is Kovald will live and be cured, and they'll somehow reconcile okay. in some fashion. That's my, that's my prediction. And, and my prediction, having never read it, is Kovald, they're not going to reconcile. And maybe Kovald survives, maybe he does, I'm not sure about that, but I do not think they will reconcile. But I right. could be wrong. We'll, well find out. We'll find out next time. On Star Trek comic book review. Indeed. All right. And anything else? That's it. I got nothing else to say about this one. All right. Well, then let's go ahead and wrap up. And next week we will finish off 
Starfleet Academy for reals this time. Cool. Uh, along well, not with... cool, but... What's that? It's good to finish the story. I mean, it's a particular story, but bad that the series is over. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So in addition to that issue, we're also going to do uh, a couple of Marvel one-shots. They did a issue called Operation Assimilation, which is a Borg-centric Borg episode issue. Mm-hmm. And then the Riker special number one. Yeah, I like Riker. It's a good character. Yeah, I'm Should curious about this, this issue. Yeah. Should be interesting to see how he steps out into uh, a more Riker-focused story. Right. So we'll... Yeah, so is he going to actually be away from the Enterprise? So it really is the Riker show? Or is it just going to be a a very Riker-focused story like Data's Day or something on the ship with the other characters around? Right. Don't know. I've never read it. We'll find out. We will indeed. Cool. It's called The Enemy of My Enemy. Uh, Is my friend. To finish the rest of this thing. Okay. All right. Anything else? Nada. All right. Close up shop and be back next week. Great. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on the review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at starT comicbookreview at gmail.com Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic second name book review See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review Let's get the hell out of here